Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Welcome to Boxes and Lines. God bless us. God bless us all. This is another one of our alumni series and today... Another in the series of the IEX diaspora. He always gets fancy words. Yes, ex-IEXers, IEXers for life. I like using words like that because it makes me feel dumb. Anyway, go ahead. I keep thinking it sounds like a medication, but anyway, (laughs) all of his fancy words sound like, if you have a sore knee, rub diaspora on it. I'd like to introduce Lawrence Latimer, former IEXer, but now the CEO of Dinara. Welcome, Lawrence. Good morning. Good to be here. Good to be back. And we are doing this in the morning, we so now there's a, lot, the there's a lot of pressure yeah, on us to perform. We can do it at the end of the day yeah, yeah. with a beer, yeah. so now we're, we're, we are without that crutch, so we're going to just wing I it. don't know whether this is a handicap or this is uh, the better part <laughs> this, of the day. For this, you. Will, this will be a good thing. We'll see. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. So I thought what we do to just kick this off is get a little intro, Lawrence, on what you're up to now, and then we'll regale you at really... Dispara question. <laughs> Did I use that one? <laughs> no. Well, I heard you use prescient no, early on, which he yes, fucking yes, puts yeah, in like every second sentence. Yeah. Well, I knew John was going to be yeah, here, yeah, so I had yeah. to pull out the well, source yeah, before I got yeah, here. Yeah, I see them written on your hand now. Exactly. That makes sense. <laughs> Idiosyncratics coming up. Go. Uh-huh. Lawrence, yes. welcome. Honestly, it's great to have you back. Great to have you back in the office. And we're very interested to hear what you're up to now. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. So let me tell you a little bit about Dinar. Uh, so I am the CEO and co-founder. Uh, we are a enterprise banking services solution. What we're trying to do is really reimagine banking, commercial banking services for the crypto economy. And so we provide one integrated platform where any business can hold or transact in crypto just as easily, safely, and securely as they can in fiat. And it really, the whole thing is about that integrated banking. So if you're full DeFi, 100%, you know, into the digital asset world, probably not the greatest solution for you. Um, if you are only working in fiat, in USD, Chase, City, you know, Wells, those guys, you guys got right. you covered. But for the 95% of Web3 companies that are transacting in both FIA and uh, digital assets, uh, we want to provide a, a, an alternative for them. First dumb question of the day then. So when you say full DeFi, would a full DeFi person just go straight digital wallet and not? You have a small, the, yeah. yeah, you have a small number of businesses that are out there, crypto businesses that are out there that move their assets directly into, um, digi- move their fiat directly into digital assets and never look back. Okay. Uh, and so some of the DAOs um, are sort of fully, uh, I would say fully DeFi, fully with operating within the digital asset world or receiving payments, sending payment out to vendors and others, uh, all on digital assets. Uh, and so they have no interaction with um, fiat. We provide a solution for those folks, but I'd say that they're, typically they're sophisticated enough that they are really string together their own enterprise banking services, enterprise financial services themselves. Uh, it's those companies whose core business is not about providing financial services, whether it's the gaming company or the, um, you know, one of the, the level three protocols that are about you know, enabling uh, digital apps, uh, excuse me, DeFi apps on their protocol. It's the, you know, the corner coffee shop that wants to accept uh, digital assets. Those are the types of companies uh, that are great customers of ours. 
When we go to launch, um, we anticipate launching in the early part of the fall. Uh, our core customers are going to be crypto VCs, so companies that are investment companies that are buying the underlying tokens of the portfolio VCs? companies. VCs, VCs, venture oh, capital VCs. Firms. I know what Sorry. that means. Thank you. Okay. What, what does it mean, John? I know. Three, two, one. Venture capital. Boom. Ronan. Well done. There okay. We go. Yeah. Uh, and then crypto startups, so crypto native firms. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and then over time, we'll expand into other uh, customer segments. So when you talk about exchanging fiat for cryptocurrencies in particular, so think uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum in particular, mm-hmm. how is it affected by the recent volatility in terms of um, no. digital assets? Does it make the need for efficient exchange mechanisms more important? Does it scare people away? Does it like push the time lane back? How, mm-hmm. how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the recent market volatility and, and overall economic uncertainty has been hard on any number of businesses, any number of industries. I don't think anybody has really gotten away unscathed from, you know, commodities to securities, you know, hard businesses, you know, you name it. Uh, in the digital asset space, it's been a pretty steep drop, right? And um, it w- peaked last November at around 69,000, uh, excuse me, yeah, 69,000 per Bitcoin. Now it's sort of this morning, I think so it was around 23, 24,000. Pretty big drop, not quite as far as the, Last big drop that we saw in 2018, where the decline was closer to 85-ish, if I remember correctly, uh, percent. Uh, but it's a pretty big drop. Uh, what you also have seen is a number of recent, um, you know, um, crypto hacks, as they call them. Right. So a lot of it's been targeted, some of the bridges uh, that have, you know, the bridges between different asset classes. Um, um, but it's been tough, right? A lot of black eyes in the industry. And, and obviously with the three arrows, Terra Luna sort of debacle and, and, you know, three arrows Celsius and, you know, some of these other firms, uh, Voyagers, another one, these big um, um, collapses. It's been a big black eye. And ironically, it, it reminds me a lot of going back to when Bear. Uh, went under in March of 2008, and it was six months later before Lehman went under. So kind of wondering, is this the Lehman moment or the bear moment? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, regardless of which moment they it said is, bear for a second, I'm like, Jesus, no, bear <laughs> tell me there's nothing Sorry. happening. It's, it's, not, not, the, it's not, not the bear, bear moment. Uh, bear, yeah. bear Stearns moment uh, back in 2018. And so regardless of which moment, if you think about the market, you know, we saw the trough, I think it was 2009, it had been like an unabated tear uh, since then. So, you know, everything that goes down is going to come back eventually. It's just a matter of how long and uh, how long it takes to come back. And, and kind of like where we are in the curve. I mean, I think yeah. that clearly there is the market are here to stay, I assume that there will, uh, you know, be a, a need and a market demand for people who are efficient intermediaries that provide, you know, sort of value added service that people don't have. It. It's just kind of the question of how long does it take to kind yeah. of like work out the froth, so to so to speak, yeah. so that the people that really are providing um, added value can distinguish themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I don't prognosticate on how long it's going to take. That's that, that there are people who get paid to do that. That's not what I get paid to do. I get paid to build a valuable service uh, and deliver that service to companies that that need them uh, and that can really use them. Frankly, the market fundamentals for what we do are, are great. When you think about the number of new dollars that have come online or been announced for crypto VC funds in the first half of the year, it's over $10 billion in new assets under management for early and mid-stage crypto VCs. When you think about the number of comp- new company formation, that's still at a, at a tremendous clips off the highs from 2021. But 2021 was a crazy year by any estimate, you know, by any, any metric terms of, at least in the early stage uh, company formation. So the number of companies, the dollars deployed, the number of new funds that were announced, like, 
all crazy by historical standards. And so what you're seeing, frankly, is a reversion to the mean uh, in many cases, which feels like a tremendous debacle, you know, market meltdown. Mm. But the reality is that it's really reversion to the mean. Um, and I think a healthier pace of innovation, a healthier pace of company formation, a healthier pace of capital deployment uh, than what we saw in 2021. So all that, to, uh, again, coming back to where we sit in the landscape, Market fundamentals for us are great. There's new businesses that are coming online all the time. These businesses need basic uh, financial services. And our thesis, our vision is that no company should ever have to suffer because they can't get really basic financial services, right? When your bank is working, you don't even think about it. It's like, it's like you know, the blood in your body, yeah, right? It's bank's working, bank. you don't think about it. When it's not working, you think a lot about it. Right? So you, you mentioned in the intro, um, you know, a coffee shop and stuff mm -hmm. like, I guess, taking payment yep. in, in crypto. Kind of everybody knows the famous story of the guy who spent like 160 million. It turns out in today's Bitcoin value on right, pizza. pizza yeah. But um, where 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 do those where do those uh, folks go today? Where you know what yeah. what problem are you guys uh, addressing on top of that? Because yeah. I think I think people do transact that way now, right? Yeah. So you're talking mostly about um, kind of what I say retail. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so we don't do anything retail. Okay. Um, so those folks today, you know, whether it's Robinhood or Cash App or, you know, PayPal and, you know, even Venmo, any number of places where you can swap your USD for some typically limited number of digital assets. If you get a little more sophisticated, you go to MetaMask, sort of form your own, get your own wallet, and then you can sort of start exploring in, in broader asset classes. We're focused on the enterprise, commercial banking. So we are only serving other businesses. So now, these businesses may be delivering services and, and products into the market and selling to retail. But for them, it's like, you know, where does IEX bank its money, right? It, it's, it could be Silicon Valley Bank. It could be Chase. It could be any number of places. Uh, we want to be that enterprise bank for the crypto economy. Now, when you talk about uh, providing banking services, mm -hmm. people um, often have a very sort of fixed conventional point of view when they hear the term bank, mm -hmm. as we know, there's been a lot of discussion about um, the where these different intermediaries sit mm -hmm. on the regulatory spectrum. So uh, who, regu who regulates you or who may regulate you or what do you, uh, what are your thoughts about kind of the ongoing debate about kind of who, uh, who has jurisdiction over what? Yeah. So to be clear, we are a technology service that abstracts away from and have a partner-based um, strategy. So we partner with downstream regulated entities. So we have a banking as a service partner, which is regulated by the OCC, National uh, has a national bank charter, custodial technology partners and others. So we're, what we're doing on behalf of the customers who today are dealing with four or five, sometimes six different counterparties, you know, a couple of fiat banks because they're worried about getting to banks. So they've got a spare number of liquidity uh, partners, a couple of exchanges, maybe some OTC desks, and oftentimes multiple custodians. We can abstract away from all that complexity for them. So in one account, customer logs into Dinar and they're able to see and hope, see all of their digital assets as well as their USD, swap between those assets, receive and then send from designated entities. Um, but again, we are the technology provider, not the actual regulated entity. However, we're building ourselves as if we were the regulated entity because once our banking as a service partner calls us and says, hey, we've got an inquiry or we've got a, you know, some kind of, of audit we've got to do, they're just going to call us and say, we need information on, you know, these types of customers or these transactions during this amount of time. So we're setting ourselves up as if we were the regulated entity. Yeah. But sort of getting back to that regulatory landscape, listen, we don't take a position on what good regulation is or bad regulation is. What we do have a very affirmative position is that generally speaking, more regulation in the crypto industry is a good thing. It reduces risk. 
It reduces uncertainty for other market participants to come in and, and, um, and come into the space. Uh, and when people aren't worrying about, hey, you know, is this a security? Is this a commodity? How does it hold? What's my tax exposure? When they aren't worrying about those sorts of things, they're much more willing to dive into the innovation and much more willing to dive into the infrastructure, much more willing to hold these assets in ways that are meaningful for them. And so that's what we are, are proponents of. Uh, reg- sure. Smart regulation in the system that lowers risk, that lowers the uncertainty, uh, and it just allows more participants to come into the space. Well, I think that's smart. And there certainly are a lot of institutional investors in particular that are kind of looking for the good housekeeping seal of approval or yep. at least some something they can point to to give them comfort that they are um, – that they can be allowed into the yep. space. I don't know if you know, um, Lawrence, but I um, actually have held senior <laughs> regulatory positions. I swear. I was just going to ask. I was just know that. <laughs> And, and both the SEC and the CFTC, for that matter. Corona didn't know that to the last podcast. I yeah, well, I know the SEC one because you like sing it every morning uh, in the bathroom. Yeah. That's the headline. CFTC. I did not know that. Mm, one. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, did not, I did not. I did not know that till uh, last one either. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't even know if it's true, but you can yeah. say anything on a podcast, Lawrence. <laughs> New information. Right. right. Am, I, am I allowed to ask a question or just want no, to please uh, go get ahead. him in the go regulatory compliance go corner? Go. So I have, one, I apologize, Lawrence. Two, obviously, I know you guys are launching soon. Do you have existing competitors? Yeah. Are, are there solutions like this already out there? And where, where, where do you think you really differentiate? Yeah, of course. There's tons of competitors in this space. Um, it is a, if you think about uh, commercial banking globally, it's about a $1 trillion uh, revenue opportunity. Uh, crypto commercial banking, we estimate is about a $50 billion revenue opportunity just in the U.S., uh, and so there's a number of competitors in this space. We, we tend to think about it in three or, cause I'm three or four broad groups. So one are, um, fiat banks that have moved into providing some crypto services. So you think of your silver gates or the signatures of the world and they've done quite well for themselves. They've got some custodians that have applied for, um, bank charters. Um, Anchorage is one that's sort of well known to have yep. applied and received a bank charter. Mm-hmm. Paxos is another one. I know you guys know, uh, know, um, Chaz pretty well. And there's a few others that are out there that are also moving in that space. And then there's some neobanks, Custodia Bank, which has got a a state charter out of Wyoming, a rival bank, which is based out of Puerto Rico. All are, are, you know, trying to provide just commercial banking services. And I want to be clear, I'm just giving you competitors in our space, not in the broader um, crypto uh, uh, banking services space. And then there are, you know, some wildcards out there, other technology providers um, that are out there. We think we compete well for a few different reasons. So number one, we are built from the ground up to provide these kind of services. So we're not competing with our customers. We're not a sort of a legacy bank that's moving into these services yeah. that is, you know, has oftentimes has a tough time digesting the risk profile um, and really just understanding how to assess risk in these new markets. Um, and we've got a, a great strategic partnership with Silicon Valley Bank. You know, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, we were incubated in their innovation group. Uh, and that group has a history now of launching and scaling businesses that that really provide great services to the innovation economy. So I think Vouch Insurance is probably the one that's most popular, most well-known, that was uh, um, uh, incubated in that innovation group and has gone on to be quite successful for itself. Uh, so that partnership really gives us great, great partner to have. Uh, they yeah. are uh, an investor in us. They also are really helping on the customer acquisition side as well and really helping us define and, and refine and get access to customers that are that can use our services. So SUB is the leading bank for VCs and um, startups. They've got oh, around you know, 70, 80% of the VC fund banking relationships in the US and probably 50 to 75% of the scaled or scaling startup banking relationships. 
So it really is the, you know, the really the, the largest player that's out there. So having them as a strategic partner is a great asset for us. So the other thing that, so that, that's, you know, another piece that the, the main piece that's, that's incredibly, um, you know, valuable for us. The other piece is just our incredible focus on customer experience. So not just providing a technology service, not just providing a, a sort of human service, but providing a, a full end-to-end experience for the customer that is head and shoulders above what they're getting in other places. We've talked to over 400 C-level executives at crypto startups and crypto VCs over the last year, call it the last 18 months or so. And the pain points were clear and consistent uh, and just, it, it was incredibly like um, personal in many ways for the people that we spoke to. Um, they, you know, I don't know how many people love their banks today, just as a sort of a general rule, but it was amazing to us to hear how much um, uh, enmity <laughs> that many of these uh, folks had uh, around their banking services, how poor an experience it was for them. So that's the thing that we're really going after, providing this integrated experience to just give a, a Far better. Was there, you said consistent. Like, what, what was, I'm just kind of curious yeah. in this space, what would consistently be yeah. their largest pain point today? Yeah. So for VCs, we heard a few things. So one was the fact that, it, you know, moving, they, they have to manage four or five, sometimes six different uh, counterparties to string together their enterprise banking services. Uh, the, another that we heard pretty consistently was the lack of just like multi-account, multi-user account permissions. Let me give you a couple of use cases to kind of bring it, bring it home. So, you know, if you're, if you're uh, investing in a crypto startup and you're a VC firm, oftentimes you're, you're taking money from your LP. So moving from fiat, you've got to move that into uh, crypto. And then, you know, that typically is going to get locked up in some kind of safe agreement. Or if you're doing a direct investment on a live token, you got to buy that token on with crypto. Oh, so that's how you do the investment. Um, that's how you do the investment, okay. right? That transaction uh, can, is moving from fiat to crypto, especially large holdings, is incredibly slow and, and frankly, quite complex. So it can be six or seven steps that you've got to go through between the two. And just in this case, it's just two counterparties just to move the money over. And then it's a third counterparty that's going to receive that value. And it can take sometimes two or three days to actually settle. Now, if you're on a tight timeline and you're, you know, some hot startup is telling you you've got 24 hours to make this investment, you can literally miss out on an investment. We heard that more than one time from some of our customers. If you're onboarding, right, you're onboarding at a new entity, right? So you're going through a KYC process. And this gets back to that, that multi-user um, account permissioning. You've got to repeat that process for every legal entity you have, right? So now most VC firms, if they're successful, has fund one, fund two, fund okay. three, maybe fund four. Those yeah. are all separate legal entities. So every time you go and have a new fund, you've got to go through the entire KYC process with your mm -hmm. counterparty. Um, so it's literally as if you're starting from ground zero. And we had in one case, uh, one of the firms told us they had switched names. So now they had four funds. They switched names. They had to go through the entire KYC process. Couldn't just mm -hmm. send some kind of amendment mm -hmm. saying, hey, everything's the same. We just So that, not just at one vendor, but at four different vendors. So it was like absolutely mind numbing for them that they had to go through this entire process again, just because they changed the name and they couldn't just do it. Which is so highly ironic because one of the great um, supposed benefits of all of the, the new blockchain technology is supposed to make things more efficient mm -hmm. um, in terms of transferring and settling and all that stuff. But when yeah. you're, when you're uh, integrating the fiat piece into um, all of yeah. the others, it's like, it's, a, you, you, you can't really yeah. miss. You can't skip steps. In some sense, it sounds like you actually have to go through additional steps. It's probably just me, but I yeah. went to register my name. So I, now, I own ronan-ryan.eat. And uh, it took me about like 30 steps to do it. Similar to what you said, yeah. move from this wallet Ronan, to this wallet, go over the- What? Ronan-ryan.eat. Ronan <laughs> 
Dot eat. And what's e- that? E-T-H. It's the new dot com. Oh, the future. okay. That's what it is. Imagine yeah. if you had johnramsey.com. Uh, okay. How yeah. unvaluable it would be <laughs> <laughs> 30 years later. That's All what right. Ronan, that Ryan, So let me give you one more little use case on a VCU because this one so blows my mind. <laughs> because I, this, I, this is like my personal favorite here. So we had um, heard this more than once, but just to give it a use case, we had a, uh, somebody, uh, entity that was working with some over-the-counter desks. Uh, and these desks, they identify their partners through their email address. So you have one email address that you can log into your account at this OTC desk. Well, again, they had multiple funds. And so each time they had to log, to, to like form a new account with this counterparty, they had to form a new email because they couldn't use the same email from the first one. So you have a bunch of finance, uh, finance FinOps executives that are literally trading email addresses with each other in order to access their accounts at some of these over-the-counter desks. So uh, like you're reduced to literally passing your logins and, and IDs around. Like that's how ridiculous it it's is. Silly in efficient places. places. That's it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. And so this is still the early days of the institutionalization of, in our, in our case, commercial banking service. I think in broadly across the market, it's still the early days of the institutionalization of the market. We think we've got a better mousetrap, uh, something that provides great value, far superior customer experience than what you have today, uh, and have a great partner that's really serving as a tailwind for, for us. So how do you think about the growth of stable coins and other assets that are designed to be um, kind of function as an alternative um, to fiat mm-hmm. uh, currencies? So that's kind of like a uh, a, a topic on its own has raised a lot of regulatory concern on its own. You mentioned some of the recent, you know, kind of blow ups in terms mm-hmm. of those things. Is that part of your business is trying to um, provide more efficiencies there? Where where do you see that market? Yeah. Going? So we, again, this is one of those, we don't take a position on whether stable coins are good or bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say that there is a broad range of different types of stable coins. You, you know, one that, that is probably top of mind for most people right now, or at least folks that are, that are skeptical about the industry is the Terra Luna collapse back yeah. you know, a couple of months ago. And that was an algorithmic stable coin. Um, and there was, there were some, you know, if you were kind of a student of economics, uh, there were some very sort of clear reasons why, and you, by the way, a walk, like not a, a typical sort of consumer of, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, market participant with uh, stable coins in this case, Terra Luna. But if you're a really like economic walk, there were some, some very clear reasons why the, the an algorithm, the stable coin is probably not the, the best thing to sort of launch into the market or impose risks that are different from say, fully backed uh, stable coins, like say a USDC. In our experience, Stable coins serve a very specific economic purpose. And, you know, we may wind up using them in some ways to settle transactions, particularly between different counterparties or between different uh, entities. But we want to make sure, like everything else, that there's, you know, really good, strong market support for the underlying asset. Right. And uh, fully backed stable coins are fully backed typically by U.S. dollar, by treasuries, you know, um, and other very liquid uh, instruments. Things that are not fully backed or maybe algorithmic and others pose unique risks. And anybody who uses them should be aware of those risks. Right. Well, that's the thing that occurred to me, too, is that all of these markets, like all markets, um, depend on um, trust fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And so if your asset is backed by an algorithm, then it means that you have to basically trust the code. And you have to trust that the code is going to perform equally well in all kinds of market conditions, exactly. which is... Um, feels like a bit of a stretch. And certainly in the case of those, the particular examples, it did turn out to be, yeah. um, uh, a little bit 
too much of a stretch. Yeah. Would it, you agree with that, Ronan? That's a great. I think that's a very prescient, uh, prescient insight. Yeah, trenchant. <laughs> so I, I have a, I have a <laughs> trenchant. That's another one of his favorite. Yeah. I, have a, I have a question uh, from one founder to another. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, John. That's <laughs> me including talk, me for that's the me moment. Yeah, that's my Like, look, I, I know what it's like to like found a company. Yeah. You, you certainly started to found a company or in the process of founding a company in a in a pretty interesting time in the world, like post pandemic, but yeah. during pandemic. Has that been difficult or, or do you think it's been a positive thing where web, you know, everything's gone more digital. So is this better for that space or is it more difficult? Yeah. Well, you know, so I've got a 20 year, 20 plus year career now, dating myself career, uh, mostly at the intersection of finance and technology. And I've only ever joined two companies that had more than 40 people at them at the time that I joined. Uh, if you remember here, I was 38, I think it was 37 or 38. <laughs> yeah. um, but the two companies were McKinsey and Company at the beginning of my career and, and a company, SunGuard, since FIS, um, the middle part of my career. So like early stage businesses are actually what I know. I spent more than 15 years or, you know, call it roughly 15 years in early stage companies. And I've been sort of single digit employee in a number of places, have, have launched some some businesses I uh, founded some businesses early part of my career. So being in this, in sort of the seat, being in the space is certainly not new. Um, I would say the market that we're in and the environment they're in is very unique. Uh, I haven't seen this before. The move to all remote has been swift, uh, has been, at least in the space that I operate in, I know very few companies, frankly, that are requiring people to be in offices. Um, that is like a 180 degree shift from yeah. where we were in 2019. There were some businesses, um, typically smaller, oftentimes very discreet that had fully remote workforces. But normally you had, you know, some core place that you went in and then you had uh, satellites there. We are, Dinar is 100% remote. Um, we started that way. We're going to remain that way um, until it no longer makes sense for us to be that way. Uh, we have had tremendous success at hiring exceptional people all over the country. Uh, we've got employees from Hawaii all the way to New York and North Carolina and manage those time zones and manage those relationships appropriately. I'd say we've had to invest a lot more in connectivity. So what are the things that you can do to build identity, to build, you know, and I'm using sort of culture in a performance perspective, not in sort of a, like a touchy-feely perspective. You know, we're, we are a high-performing team. In order to be a high-performing team, you need to have some trust in the people around you. You need to respect who they are and what they do. You need to have space for disagreement. Um, and sometimes it can be really difficult to build that kind of trust, to build that kind of, of rapport fully remote. Yeah. Um, so we did bring everybody together in June, you know, all at that point, all 13 people uh, in the company. <laughs> no fist fights. Um, no, no fist fights, fortunately. Uh, nobody, you know, sort of, you know, face down in the pool or anything like that. Uh, and we're, you know, we're likely to get together once or twice a year for the foreseeable future. Uh, but we do invest a lot in just doing things that are designed to build rapport, that are work-related, but are sometimes ancillary to the core job. Uh, and we spend a lot of time in cross-functional projects. We do a lot of learning cycles. So like uh, not every week, but usually once or twice a month, somebody will present to people across the company so that, you know, the tech team is learning from the the product team. The product team is learning from uh, some folks on the go-to-market side. And so to make sure that we're getting like a broad exposure and that everybody knows what's going on in the organization. So 
it's been it's been a challenge. I mean, quite honestly, it's yeah, been no, a challenge. It, it, it feels um, like it's, every it feels good. <laughs> it feels like every company has to figure out where it fits on that spectrum yeah. of um, remote to full in office. Where I mean, we're doing this uh, like in person, yeah. um, and I and you know I'm glad that we are. It's good to have some time uh, where people can actually see each other face to face. I love you, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree Don't more. Don't take John, John away from me. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, which is why we are investing in getting people together. Um, whereas we get a little bit large and start to get to scale, we'll probably do things a little more regionally than necessarily nationally. But I do think it is important to get together um, just to, to see each other, break bread together, uh, to build those kind of relationships that are just tough to do virtually. Um, you're, it's you're not right, possible, though, but it's tough. You can source talent that you wouldn't be able to source. Um, like I'm a big believer in the office. We're hybrid now. Mm-hmm. It's voluntary, mm-hmm. but we're most of us on the business side are back like three days a week. But uh, I definitely recognize in my old age, you can hire people remotely that you wouldn't get that talent for that price or that passion if you required them to be in downtown New York City and the World Trade Center. So totally get it. It's it's, it's just interesting. Like when we started IEX, you know, first year there got up to about 13 of us in one room and we were sort of like a band of like merry men, right? And I thought that helped it, but uh, I'd actually be curious to see culturally what it's like to do what you're doing remotely and only seeing people a few times a year. You know, interesting. Yeah. Now without its challenges, yeah. um, but like I've got just an incredible team of people. And I think you hit on something that's really important. Finding people that are really passionate about what you're doing. My pool went from, you know, I don't know, 30 million people in the New York's MSA, the metropolitan statistical area to 300 million people across the United States. Uh, and we really have been able to find people who are super excited about what we do and the mi- mission that we have and are just excited to come to work every day. And that is, I'm finding so much more important than necessarily finding people who are excited to be in the office. You know, I'll tell anybody, I will put my team against any team in the digital asset space, any team in the financial services space. They are on fire. They are incredibly high performing. They're excited to come into work every day. They don't always agree, but they always get the job done. Uh, and they're just an incredible um, asset that I, there's no way I could have pulled this team together. We were all trying to be in New York or in Florida or in, in L.A. That's great. And in addition to all the things that you're doing with Denara, you are also, I know from the good prep work that our folks have done, you are also an angel investor, which I think is a lovely term. It's a, it's a, it's you're a beautiful an angel image. You're, you're basically an angel <laughs> to us. So what are the areas uh, in terms of spreading your angelic uh, largesse, whatever, yeah. what are the uh, opportunities that you're looking at? Um, and um, where, uh, who do you think deserves more help? Yeah. So, you know, personally, my investments are mostly around financial services, which is what I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in the industry over 15 years experience now in financial services space. So that's the area I feel like I have the most to offer and have the best chance of diligencing what I'm seeing a good idea. And the angels say just you're really diligencing people and an idea. But I'm also, I'm the founder actually of two different angel investment, one major angel investment organization called Princeton Alumni Angels. We've deployed over $14 million across 40 deals uh, since we made our first investment in 2018 and one of the co-leads there. And then also have another entity that really is an aggregator of angel uh, investors called Homecoming. Um, and so I, I probably review, I don't know, five, 600 applica- uh, startup applications a year, decks a year. Uh, and you get kind of, you start to get some muscle memory on what, you know, what it takes to at least get my money. Everybody's got mm-hmm. their own uh, risk profile and their own thing, what it takes to get my money. Uh, but I'd say a few things that are, that for me are, are really important. Angel investment is a catalytic 
like first dollar oftentimes into these companies. And it really is the bridge from an idea into something that's investable by a VC firm, uh, even at the seed stage, where typically you want to see some kind of prototype or maybe even some customers. When you're an angel, you're typically investing in somebody who's got an idea and you know maybe a deck that's oftentimes not particularly well-written. <laughs> uh, so you really have to um, have some good sense of the markets that you're investing in, right? Or else it's really just gambling. Yeah. And then have some way of diligencing people, right? Is this a trustworthy person? Is this someone who's really passionate about the particular problem that they're going after to solve? Do they have great experience in the space or can access that great experience? Can they recruit people? Uh, or are they the type of person that can go on and, and source additional capital once you they you know get to whatever the next set of milestones are and they're going to need a much bigger check than what you're writing? So I get pretty excited, pretty passionate about what we do on on the outside, and it's it's really for me a continuation of everything that I do in my my professional life, which has always been about access and to financial services. So anyway, uh, Ronan, uh, should we uh, transition to now the, to the to question of questions? <laughs> question of questions. <laughs> question of questions. Lawrence, we ask every one of our guests here um, to tell us what their favorite Wall Street movie is and why. Pressure. It is pressure. <laughs> so they, there's two that come to mind immediately. One is Wall Street. Uh, which I think is just this sort of seminal moment. And I don't remember whether it was before or after the, the crash of 87, but it was sort of right around there. And it sort of just really captured the zeitgeist of what Wall Street was, although it was really about a leveraged buyout, not actually you know, um, a Wall Street movie. The one I'd say is probably my favorite of those trading spaces. So, or trading places, excuse me. Yeah. The, you know, it was just like classic, you know, Eddie Murphy in his prime. Um, it was <laughs> like all, you know, yeah. it, it couldn't have been yeah, any big funnier. It, it, was, was, it was a great movie. It was a bunch, and like yeah. some folks who were probably in, you know, I'd say mid to later stages of their career, who was just like still top of the game. Eddie Murphy was still young and like really coming up top of his game. It was hilarious in, in so many different respects. Um, so that's probably my all time favorite Wall Street movie. What's your favorite Wall Street book? John wants to mix <laughs> it up. You don't have to suck up just for that. I mean, there's like, you know, there's all kinds of good. We'll sign the book for you if you want. Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting. I actually don't read a lot about the industry um, because we're in it. So I try to read stuff that's away from the industry to just give my brain a little bit of a break. Um, like Jack Reacher type stuff, kicking ass. Yeah, <laughs> I did love the big short. I have to say, I thought that was a, uh, that was also Michael's a, a phenomenal book. writer. So yeah. That was a good book, actually. I had to read yeah. it a few times to really understand it. Yeah. Just yeah. being honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank so, you for being open. So, John, you'll appreciate this, this one. So, I'm actually reading a biography uh, right now on um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Uh, and so, it was written by, yeah, sort of a- Who the hell is that? Princeton. He's a- Former uh, head of African SEC? American. No, no. No, I, I wish. Uh, no, he was an African-American poet from the late 1800s uh, into, I think he passed like early 1900s, but had sort of this, all these different touch points to uh, to different post-Reconstruction um, Black intellectuals and other um, writers. So. so you're not reading Jack Reacher. Okay. No. 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 Well, no. thank I you. I watch the movies, but I don't yeah. read the books. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you for raising the intellectual quality of our podcast. <laughs> I'm going to edit that out anyway. Like well, we can tell you about go grabbing a beer after the party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, we should have had this. At, Let's just know, pretend it's the end of day and go have a beer now. Um, it's, it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> Always. <laughs> well, Lawrence, uh, it's been great having you back in our alumni series. <laughs> great to be here. Yeah. We are so pleased to have you. And it's been a really a very interesting discussion. Thank you for putting up with Ronan. And we uh, wish you the best of luck, too. Yes. We're looking forward to seeing the uh, the, the full-fledged live announcement 
Rock and roll. You guys will be amongst the first to know. Thank you. Always, you've always been incredibly supportive. This has been fun today. Hopefully, we can do this more often. Absolutely. With, without the mics next time. Yeah, without the, the mics. Yeah. Rock, rock and roll. Rock and roll now. Boxes and lines over now. Boxes and lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Sarah Forster with support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved.